0: You're listening to The Health Chronicles Podcast, a show where we discuss and share our experience with kidney disease, post-transplant life, mental health, advocacy, body positivity, and so much more. Welcome back and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Hiddle, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Fatu and Faduma, Today, we'll be talking to Sigil, who is a kidney and pancreas transplant patient who received her transplants in 2009 and again in 2019. She is currently a senior program coordinator in cardiovascular research at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. So Sejil, um, welcome to the Health Chronicles podcast. We're happy to have you. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to get right into it. Um, I know that you, when you and I spoke, you had mentioned to, um, to us that you got diagnosed, um, with type one diabetes in 2000, what, sorry, at the age of 11 in sixth mm-hmm. grade. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. Okay.
0: So being diagnosed with diabetes and being so young, were you do you remember the conversation you had with your physician when that happened, or was that kind of a conversation you had afterwards through your parents?
1: Um, I think it was more a conversation through my parents, just because I was so young. Um, I do remember like being at school and like having my parents be like, you need to go, like, we need to go to the hospital, like, and kind of, you know, having that conversation with my parents, but they didn't really know, you know, and I think we were just all you know, in shock from it. So I really didn't know what was going on. I just, you know, like as a kid, you don't really understand things or grasp them. You just kind of like judge your basements on like how your parents are doing and seeing your parents crying or like, you know, upset is very like upsetting to you because you're like, oh, what's going on? And that's all I really remember is like looking through the window in in the hospital, like on my bed and then seeing my parents like talking to the doctor upset outside because I think they were just trying to figure out what was going on. And I was just, Sitting there, and that's all I really remember from that whole um, journey. And then, um, you know, later on, like kind of like coming to terms with it. And I thought it was actually fun, like learning how to give injections to oranges, and you know, and running up the stairs and exercising with the the nurses and things like that. I thought it was fun, actually. I didn't really like understand what was going on, but um, I think I adapted well to it when I was in the hospital and kind of, you know, um, just just thought it was like something different and something that, you know, I could just tackle easily. So I didn't really, it didn't really hit me much. So, and I think I was kind of like, no, mom and dad's going to be okay. Like they were worried more than I was. So.
0: Isn't that interesting when you're a child that, you know, a lot of these things are like much more serious and heavier, kind of just feel like it's a part of life. Mm-hmm. And then when you get older, you're like, "Oh my god, I didn't realize how serious that was." So yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of um, not saying that. Yeah, it's helpful to get diagnosed as a child. But I think there's a little more resilience there
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, because we don't really think too into like the actual meaning of what is happening. Um, that we just learn to live with it and we adjust much more quicker. Um, was there anything that happened to you prior to this diagnosis? Like, were you feeling anything or was it just kind of like this routine checkup that led to your diagnosis?
1: Um, so I, so we had gone to India like a few years ago and I had gotten malaria then. And so like, I had never gotten like very sick throughout my childhood, except that one time I got malaria and we had come back to the U S and I had like a reoccurrence of it. And so actually was at the same hospital, like a few years prior. And then um, they started me on a medicine and I got better in the U S but it took them. I do remember like them having to have me come back a few times to get blood work and things like that as like a nine-year-old or something. And um, they, couldn't really figure out what was going on because you know malaria in the us is not really common so um i guess putting everything together like she came from india and everything they finally figured it out and i got better and um didn't really ever get sick when i was a child and then up until i got the type 1 diabetes i think my mom noticed that like i was drinking more water i was like losing weight um i wasn't eating And like the big thing I think that um, she noticed was like having to run to the bathroom. Like I'd go to the playground and I like I would not go to the bathroom at the playground. Like I'd be like, I need to go home and like they'd have to like rush me home. And I think that was like the big thing because my mom was like noticing that I was drinking like two liters of soda, like when I'd go to people's houses. And I remember being like, put that down, put that down, like trying to be like, you know. You know a typical mom, but you know, I was I just would drink so much water and so much um soda and she was just she's just like this girl's not normal, <laughs> something's going on. So I think that was like the big signal to her is the excess drinking and running to the bathroom all the time.
0: Um, so when you mentioned malaria, do you think there's a connection by any chance?
1: Um, a lot of um people have kind of thought that it might be an autoimmune type of reaction that might have happened from it but we don't have any proof or anything but um we have heard that like you know when you have like a big viral um situation it it can cause like an autoimmune um reaction in your body and then later on you can um form like type 1 diabetes or something that is autoimmune or chronic you know and so um that was the only cause we could really think of because it's not, you know, type one diabetes can have a genetic com- component to it, but um, no one in our family has it. So okay. um, just at this point, it's just spontaneous. And the only thing we can really link it to is that malaria. So okay. we're That's assuming it's autoimmune.
0: I know a lot of times people, when they think of diabetes and they initially go to their family and like, okay, who in our family has diabetes? Mm-hmm. Um, cause I know like there are people in my family, multiple people, like my father, um, my both, well, grandparents on both sides, not all of them, but like my grandfather on my mom's side and then my grandmother on my dad's side. So if there's any sort of diabetes that comes up now in the conversation, it's like, okay, I can associate with these people. Uh Um, so yeah, it sounds like your case was a little niche in that, um, there isn't anyone in your family that has diabetes. Mm -hmm. living with diabetes and not having any sort of mentors or people in your life that like are living with it. Mm -hmm. um, Did you feel any different or did you feel like anyone treated you differently? Like, what was your experience like living with diabetes?
1: Um, I felt like my parents have always been a very strong support system for me and my brother as well. So, I mean, I feel like without them, like, I, I think, you know, they were like my big big support system they never made me feel you know different or um you know and they always like whatever i wanted to do they were always there to support my dreams or goals so you know i never really like phased me much you know growing up like all my friends that i i only told like really close close friends just because of that fact of like you know what are people going to think of me or like you know they're going to think i'm weird or you know cuz like you know, it's just not something that a kid my age goes through, you know? So, like, I never really told anyone about my closest friends that needed to know, like, if I went to, like, a slumber party and my blood sugar got low or something like that. But anyone I told, like, I started to feel like, oh, they don't really care, you know? But I think I held that, like, I'm different feeling internally till I was, like, much older. Even with my transplant, like, I kind of felt that way, too. So, I think that was, like, a big... Thing with, um, with me anyways. Like I, I didn't want people to know that I was different. So I really didn't tell much to anybody, you know, even through, through all my, all my years of high school and everything. So now that I think back.
0: <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like it's um, like an invisible disease. And I think a lot of us talk about it, like living uh-huh. with, with kidney disease or having a transplant. That like there isn't like a particular look to a person. So mm-hmm. you can't like, there's no way of telling like who's living with what, right. Or what we're dealing with internally. Yeah. Um, so I feel like with diabetes as well, it's like an invisible disease and, mm-hmm. and no one knows unless if you ask, or you talk about it. That's kind exactly. of exactly what I experience. Um, so From the age of eleven, after being diagnosed, and then till the point of getting a transplant, like what was your life like? Did you have to go on certain diets? Like, were you tracking um,
1: your kidney function? What was that whole process like for you? So when I was younger, I didn't—I wasn't really aware of like my kidney function or anything. I think like you know, my parents would take me to my regular visits and then I'd do blood work. And I think I was pretty compliant <laughs> till I was about uh, probably in like 10th or 11th grade is when I was like, I, you know, I hate diabetes. And like, I would just, I would just want it to be normal. Like, I think I would, um, you know, eat anything I wanted to. And like my insulin, you know, if it was there, I would take it if I didn't. And so for a few years, I did have like a rough time. Like, I think it was probably like my sophomore, junior year, I did have a hard time controlling and the doctors, you know, even though like I was doing that, I would still go to my doctor visits because my mom would force me to. And um, I did struggle a little bit like 11th and 12th grade. And then um, or I'm sorry, 10th and 11th grade. And then my senior year is kind of when I started like realizing like, I'm going to have to go to college and I'm not going to have my parents around. And, and so they had, um, kind of introduced the insulin pump to me at that point. And I was and I, and I really was not about that. Cause I'm like, I don't want to like carry something on me. That's like, like, you know, lugging something around. And so I was like, I'm not into that at all. And so like, um, you know, I continued with, um, with, uh, just, you know, the insulin shots for, for throughout Throughout um, college and everything, and then um, I think it was, I think it was like probably my last year of college. I decided to try the pump, and it just was life changing for me. So, um, you know, like I was on different types of insulin, so I went through like all the different, you know, like they have invented so many different types of insulin. But I think I started out on like the regular, and then the the Humalog. And the NPH, or not, not the Humalog. I'm sorry, the NPH. And then I went from using that to like um, the new ones, and I think it was like Lantus and and Regular. And then it, and then Humalog got invented, and that's when I switched over to the pump because it was the most fast-acting one. And so when you inject that one, it works within 30 minutes, and that made me get really strict, tight control. So um, I think that was probably the best one that i've ever tried and would highly recommend it <laughs> for the insulin pump
2: um i think you brought up a really good point um like the transition from when you're a child where your parents are managing everything to, for you uh-huh. versus when you go into like high school college and then it's, it's, things are like kind of just pushed up on you because I, I went through that too uh-huh. um, where my mom was like on me about medication and stuff and then once i was in high school i kind of you know kind of was like a little bit more you Know calm and lenient about my medication routine and doctor's appointments. I wonder, like, I guess it's because, um, it's like, like I said, your parents are constantly on you about it and they're like, you know, managing it, and then once it becomes on you, it's like a whole nother responsibility that you're not really ready for. Oh, yeah, know. most yeah. definitely,
1: yeah. And yeah. I feel like, um, you know, just that age group too, like, I felt like mm-hmm. that is the age that you kind of want to rebel against, like, everything that you don't want to do. And so I just was not about this. I'm like, I don't want to deal with it. And it was kind of like ignorance is bliss. Like if it, if I don't pay attention to it, it doesn't exist. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I was just constantly like in my own world, I was like constantly, my blood sugars were like in 600s and it's just, I don't even know how I function. Like, honestly, and I never (laughs) got sick, like, you know, and Mm
2: -hmm. then,
1: you know, you kind of have that, like, safety net when you're younger, too, that, you know, like, you can survive with those, you know, high numbers and nothing happens to your body. And so, um, you know, by the time you get older and you start taking care of yourself again, you kind of get that little safety net and then things get better. So, you know, we're lucky that we have that for
2: when we're yeah. younger. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we feel like we're, like, immortal when we're it's, young. Oh, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, can you speak into, um, like maybe how kidney disease and diabetes relate? Because you started off with diabetes and then it kind of, you know, affected your kidneys. Is that correct? Um, supposedly I, we really don't know the main
1: cause of my, um, kidney failure because the biopsy results actually came back idiopathic, which is basically, um, they don't know the cause of what co- caused my kidneys to fail. But um, you know, because you have type one diabetes, it's usually a cause of kidney failure. But like, it's a long chronic change. So like, you know, eventually, your the diabetes kind of um, affects your kidneys just because of the you know the blood vessels and everything, and um, the sugar you know just it just all affects your um, kidney eventually. So um, that's usually. A chronic long process. So, like, you notice that your kidney function goes from stage one, stage two, stage three. And for some reason, mine went from like normal to like stage five, like immediately within like three months of a doctor visit. So, we really don't know what the cause of mine was. Um, and we never really found out. But because I have type, I had type one, we attributed it to type one or the doctor's.
2: Ed. Right, right. And how old were you when you, um, when your kidney started to fail? Sorry. Um, um, I was 26. You were 26. Oh, yes.
0: I know you um, mentioned that you attended medical school overseas. Did your, like, health circumstance lead you in that, you know, in that career direction? Or was this kind of just like something that you had a passion for to begin with?
1: I think ever since I was young, I've always wanted to be a doctor. So um, I think, you know, just what really like impacted my health, my choice in the field of what I wanted to do was like my health, just because I I always, you know, envision like working with adolescents and like working with people that, um, you know, were like me and struggling to see doctors. Like when I would, I remember going through going to the doctor and like having to sit in an office with much older patients. And and here I was like an 11 year old and like, I always wanted to like have a doctor that, that only saw people my age, you know? So, um, and it was very rare at that time. Now I think there's, you know, it's everywhere, but at the time I was like, I wish there was a doctor that, you know, only saw kids or only saw, you know, you know, younger things. And I was like, that's what I want to do is I want to go to school. I want to be a doctor and I want to be an, a, you know, an adolescent endocrinologist. That was like my main goal. And then, you know, through years you learn things and you see things and you're like, well, actually I want to do this or that. And, and so, you know, I've changed, um, many times and now, you know, my passion is definitely nephrology and transplant just because it's personal to me. But, um, yeah, at the time I definitely wanted to do adolescent endocrinology. So, um, but I did always want to be a doctor when, from when very young.
0: Yeah, I feel like um, having some sort of health diagnosis or if you're living with chronic illness, that there is always this pull of wanting to like support other people, or at least that's what I experienced.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you feel like you having your health condition would create any setbacks for, you know, um, for you to become an MD or to be in the medical space?
1: Um, no, actually, you know, I, that never ever crossed my mind just because I had such a strong support system and, you know, everything I wanted to do, like my mom and dad were always like, yes, like you can do it. And it was never like about health, but it was more like, they were kind of like upset that I was like leaving them. So they're like, are you sure you want to go to a different country or like, you know, and all that kind of stuff was more what they were more worried about versus like my health, because, you know, I mean, if, if they were worried, they never like stressed me out with it. So from, from my standpoint, like I just knew like anything I wanted to do, I could do it. Like it never, it never crossed my mind to be like, Oh, I can't do this because of my health or anything like that.
0: It's interesting because I feel like, um, I had an interest in going to the medical field because I was diagnosed with chronic kidney disease at 15, Mm -hmm. but I always felt compelled to work with people. And I felt like this would be like a good combination of both. Um, but I was told, I think at the very beginning, like, you know, because of the state that I was in or like getting a transplant and being immunocompromised and all those things. It's like being in a hospital is not the, is like one of the least sanitary places and you're Mm -hmm. constantly coming in contact with people that like are sick and what have you. So it's like not the most suitable career because Mm -hmm. you like your health may be jeopardized. So I just find it fascinating how like people projecting their own concerns can kind of like influence you. And then you're more likely to get influenced at a younger age. Cause like looking back at it now, I think I would speak into it, like how your parents spoken to you wanting to pursue mm-hmm. your passion, right. And your interest yes. versus thinking like, okay, avoid this place because it might like get you sick or what have you. Cause I feel like everyone's so different, like there's no need to like create this general idea of something.
1: Yeah. That's interesting that you say that. Cause I did actually, um, so I actually finished medical school and then I had my transplant. So kind of a little different experience than you did. And actually I had a couple of people actually bring that up. And so that kind of like, it didn't, Necessarily influenced me, but it kind of like steered me away from like necessarily doing my residency. So I did end up going into clinical research, not only because of that, like I always kind of had in the back of my mind, like I do want to do my residency, but I went into clinical research and actually enjoyed it and stuck with it just because, um, you know, I loved it. But at the same time, like I also kind of had that in the back of my mind, like if I do residency, I'll be, you know, potentially in a place that I could catch something and, you know, it may affect my own health and is it worth it? You know, so that is interesting that that kind of happened to you as well. Yeah. It's, it's always kind of about who you're around sometimes too, because like, if I had not heard that, then I may have pursued, you know, and finished my goal of like, you know, finishing residency and becoming like a true doctor. So.
0: Exactly.
2: Exactly. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, the same thing um I had a, a, a similar experience. I wanted to go into nursing uh-huh. um, out of high school, but my mom um you know stopped me because she said that it was gonna be too much for me and too much for my body to handle uh-huh. but now looking back on that I, I think I really wish I did kind of you know still went ahead and at least tried uh-huh. you know just because um I know like we should like our health is our number one priority but you're, you know, being a nurse or a doctor or what have you, you're giving back to people who you can, you know, actually relate to. And I feel like yeah. that makes you even more passionate.
1: Definitely. Like seeing both sides of things, like being the patient versus yeah. and also being, you know, in the in the help of patients, because you've lived that life that they mm-hmm. have and they can really like, you know, take a lot out from you. So it's definitely, yeah. definitely like, you know, that's the main thing I loved, you know, working in transplant is. I have walked in most of those patients shoes. And, you know, a lot of them, I would tell them like, I've been through this. The first month is hard. Like it gets better. Like just hang in there, you know, and um, you know, that would give a lot of patients comfort and seeing that I was doing so well, that would give them a lot of comfort as well, because, you know, like I know I've been there too. Like that first month is hard. Like after you get a transplant, that's all you see is like, Oh my gosh, like, am I ever going (laughs) to get better? Like, I feel like, like, I, I almost like felt like it crossed through my mind like I was actually doing better off like before my transplant because I had never had dialysis during my first one. And then afterwards I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is this is horrible. Like my blood pressure is always low. I'm like in a wheelchair, like what's going
2: on? Yeah. It definitely is an experience, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. What else can you tell us about your experience working in nephrology for like the last 4 years as a transplant patient.
1: Um I I truly truly enjoyed it. Um I've learned so much just about um other patients, myself, like you know it's like it's been amazing to give back to the place that actually, you know, have saved my life many times, you know, like throughout just, you know, um just complications from the transplant and you know, giving me my transplant because they gave me life. And so um, I just feel like every day I go into work and um, it's, it's just like, I love being there because they did so much for me. So um, but, you know, just to work with patients and, and actually be a part of different um, treatments and things that will prolong kidneys. Like we're working on some amazing, like um, different studies that are um, happening right now. Like there's a study that they're doing um, a stem cell transplant into the um, recipient from the donor to help um, ha- like prevent them from having to take immunosuppression medicine for the rest of their life. So, you know, and that's huge because like we all know, like being on immunosuppressants, it's it's kind of a nightmare sometimes because the side effects are sometimes worse than like the actual um, situation that we're in. So, um, you know, to have amazing, um, studies like that. And, you know, there's a bunch of studies about antibody-mediated rejection, um, you know, cellular rejection, which we all sometimes um, are always faced with and worried about because, you know, if that happens, we lose our kidneys. So, um, you know, and we're always doing like studies to help, you know, change the standard of care, like things to improve um, patient outcomes, things to see what we can do to prevent kidney disease. And um, it's just an amazing Um, all the studies that are out there for Mayo Clinic and, and for all the organs, you know, so um, I really, really enjoy where I, where I work and doing what I do for, um, for the patients and, and the institution.
2: Yeah, no, um, that is amazing how you get, as a transplant patient, you have like firsthand experience with all of that, you know, I can imagine that being really exciting, just um how like like you said just learning the different benefits of you know what you guys can make for patients like that's really incredible Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah I love it (laughs) I want to ask you and kind of go back to um the conversation of needing the uh, needing another kidney transplant because I know you got the pancreas and kidney transplant back in 2009 but then you got another transplant recently, actually not that long ago, mm-hmm. um, in November, 2021, but you didn't need the pancreas transplant. You just needed to have a kidney transplant. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of speak into how that works? Cause that's a very, um, unique type of situation where I think a lot of times people just get like one sort of transplant, but you have mm-hmm. had experience of having two, um, why is it that you didn't need a a second pancreas transplant?
1: So, um, fortunately for me, my pancreas, um, enzymes, my pancreas blood work always looked amazing, but for some reason, my kidney, um, just through time, it got scarred, um, you know, from different infections that we get like UTIs and, and just, you know, being on prograph that eventually causes kidney scarring and, um, fibrosis in our kidneys. So, um, Luckily, I'm not exactly sure. Like there's no real science to it, but my pancreas has done um well, you know, in terms of like everything that I've done. Like my hemoglobin A1C is like a four, and the normal hemoglobin A1C is like four to four to four to six, I believe. So like, you know, anything above that is considered diabetic. Anything below that, um probably isn't good you're probably running low blood sugars for a while but um, my blood work has always been pretty good They usually test with doing a test called the amylase and lipase and they've always kind of fallen within range and so um, you know had I ne- needed both organs I think they would have done both but luckily um, I only needed the kidney versus um, the pancreas so
0: was there like um, do you feel like a shorter time frame? of being on the list because you needed that combination, like initially for the kidney pancreas. Did you ever hear any information about that?
1: Yes. So when I was um, presented with um, the need for the kidney, when I came to the Mayo Clinic, they actually um, approached me saying that, you know, waiting for a kidney would be about four to five years. And they thought I would be a great candidate for a kidney pancreas just because of my age, my weight, um, you know, the how young I was or how young I was and how long I would be having the organ. And in terms of like the diabetes, eventually ruining the kidney over time, because that's usually what happens with diabetes. They thought I would be a great candidate and it decreased my time from, um, a year or less versus like four to five years for a kidney. So, um, just depending on my blood type as well, like I was type B positive. So, um, I guess the weight is just a quite a little bit longer for that as well. So um, yeah, it dramatically affects the waiting time for your, for your weight when you need a dual organ versus just one.
0: Okay. That, that completely makes sense. I'm also B positive, so oh, okay, both <laughs> share the same kind of blood. <laughs> um. Okay. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense because I've heard a few people talk about it. And then when I was at a kidney conference a few years back, Um, a few of the physicians had spoken into it, that if you get that dual transplant, that there's a shorter wait period, um, Mm -hmm. which is really fascinating. So the second go around for the kidney transplant was um, how long were you on the list for? And was it a deceased donor?
1: Was it a live donor? So I had, um, I was on the wait list. I think they put me on the wait list in 20 18, I believe. So I was about four, give or take like about three and a half years, I would say that I waited. But um, I, I was trying to find a live donor for a while. And um, just because I was really like just trying to stay off dialysis because um, my kidney function was just getting worse and worse like daily and is basically I was getting IV infusions of for hydration just to keep whatever function, not daily, I'm sorry, like weekly, just to kind of keep whatever function I had. And so, um, yeah, I was just trying to do whatever I could to keep whatever function I had, because I did not want to go on dialysis. And um, it just got to a point where like, I ended up getting valley fever this past January, and then I lost like any function that was there. But it was pretty much time at that point to have started dialysis. But like, I think what really pushed me over the edge, to the point that I just imme- immediately emergently had to start was the Valley fever. But um, yeah, I really tried to have a live donor, but it just didn't work out. And then I ended up getting a deceased donor in November. And it was kind of funny because my first transplant was November 5th. And then um, they had called me into the hospital November 4th. And then um, my second one actually happened November 4th. So it was kind of like a three 360 kind (laughs) of came back around the same date.
0: (laughs) Do you feel like your recovery time was a little shorter this go around just because you were familiar with the experience from like years ago or like, how did you feel just kind of segueing, for example, like back into work and just getting back to your normal schedule?
1: I honestly felt like it was a little easier just because, um, you know, science has changed so much. And, and I think that, plays a little part of it. And also just um, also, yeah, just going through the experience of knowing what to expect and already being on immunosuppressants, like, you know, beforehand, because I had my pancreas, so I never had to stop mine. So um, I think like, you know, for the doctors to adjust things and, you know, I didn't get that total, like being on nothing to like starting these immunosuppressants and all the different side effects that happened the first time around, because I already knew what to expect. And I, I could tell the doctors like, Hey, I don't want to be on this because I know this happens. And, you know, it kind of like, it kind of helped me, um, you know, with my second one. And I was able to pretty much like start walking and doing like normal activity, like probably a week out from my transplant. And I was, you know, like, like they make you start walking, of course, like in the hospital, the, day after you get your transplant. So I was walking and doing a lot of stuff in the hospital, but the pain and stuff kind of, you know, prevents you to do a lot. So I think I had the pain about like two weeks after, and then things started like healing up. And, um, I think I was like, I wanted to kind of go back to work at four weeks, but, um, decided to take a few more weeks off and ended up going back at eight weeks. So
0: that is a really quick turnaround. That's really good. Yeah. Super quick. Um, So I know you are an advocate, um, and I I saw that on your Instagram page. So I think we're all kind of familiar with UNOS um, because we're all transplant patients. Mm -hmm. But what was, you know, like what called you to work with UNOS and what is their mission?
1: So I had started off just as a UNOS you know, ambassador, which is basically just spreading the word about um, organ donation and um, the need for, you know, signing up to be a donor and, um, you know, and just advocating for what an organ donation does for patients. So that was my whole goal, and I also um, am part of Donate Life Arizona, which kind of has the same mission, and so that was where I started off. And then, um, you know, down the road, I had applied or I believe they reached out and they um, asked me to apply for a um, UNOS patient, or I'm sorry, UNOS um, Patient Advocate Affairs, for the Patient Advocate Affairs Committee. And so I had applied and I got a three year term at large with them. So I think I just started that in July of this year. And um, it's been really interesting, like working and learning about what UNOS does for um, you know patients and, working on how policies are implemented and giving feedback and, um, you know, learning about how different organs are, um, based on what criteria, eligibility criteria and, um, and safety nets and things like that in terms of like how these organs are allocated to the patients that are most in need for them and how to get the most transplants, you know, most patients transplanted at at the, you know, at the highest number that we can. I
0: wanted to actually ask you because I don't know if it's, you know, if it's donate life, mm-hmm. um, that connects the transplant patient to like the donor family.
1: I think, so family? I think it's, um, actually donate life. Um, okay. yeah, it depends on where Like I think different, different states and different, um, different states have different names for it. I know most of them are called donate life, but I know I've heard of some other names for different states that, um, you know, they call it something else, but that, that is um, from what I know is you write the letter to your transplant center, your transplant center kind of like looks over it. And then they are the ones that, you know, say it's okay. And then if something's wrong, they let you. Um, re-edit it. And then they're the ones that send it over to Donate Life. And then they're the ones that kind of reach out to the family and do all the, um, the, the coordination of that. So that's what I think happens. I'm not, you know, quite sure. Cause I don't, I don't, you know, we're not really involved in that. But um, from what I know, I've, I never heard back from my first donor, but um, from my second donor, I just wrote the letter. So I'm hoping that I hear mm-hmm. something just so I could thank them. That's exciting.
0: Cause I mm-hmm. think the, my co-host and I, like we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. If we got the experience of being able to write the letter, I got the experience of um, writing the letter, but I never got connected with the family. Okay. And then on my 10 year anniversary, I wrote another letter but I haven't uh-huh. heard from them. So I'm just like, I'll continue this whole process, but it's just cool to hear that. Like, other people also get the opportunity to write a letter. And then I know there's probably a few that actually have been able to connect with the, the donor family which is mm-hmm. an experience.
1: Oh yeah. I, that would be amazing to be able to thank them, you know, they've done so much for us that, you know, we can't even, we don't even have the words to say what they've done for us. So that would be amazing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sijal, What advice would you give to patients living with diabetes? With diabetes,
1: Um, I would say, um, you know, definitely follow your doctor's instructions. Um, I would definitely um, try to keep your blood sugars as stable as possible. Like, you know, just try to eat well, exercise. I think those are super key for, um, you know, not preventing the kidney disease. And and I think you know of like there is a component that like, you know, eventually it will happen. But I think if you really take good care of yourself and, you know, make sure that, you know, you're exercising, eating well, and um, doing what you can for your health and putting yourself first, I think you can really like prevent a lot of the complications that come with diabetes.
0: That's wonderful advice. Um, I know a lot of times people, when they get diagnosed with something, it feels like, really daunting and then usually the default is to like go in the wrong direction because you just Mm want to avoid everything but um yeah it can be just simple as like exercising you know 20 30 minutes doesn't even have to be every day but just getting some sort of activity for your body Mm -hmm. and kind of making choices at the end of the day We're excited to have you on this call and thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you guys for having me. It's so, so nice we want to, yeah, definitely. Um, we want to go ahead and shout out Unos um, at Unos News on Instagram and um, have everyone check out your page, Sigil at Sigils underscore TX underscore life. Um, and make sure to follow us on Instagram at healthchroniclespodcast to stay connected and email us at healthchronicles3 at gmail.com with any suggestions or questions you may have. So thank you again for sharing your story and um, for also advocating for transplant patients. Thank you, guys.